Let us pray. O God, our Father, we seek thy benediction upon the gifts which we bring this day. We seek also thy mercy upon our children that they may grow up in a true understanding of the fact that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their Savior. We seek thy mercy for the whole Church of Christ universal. With our gifts we rededicate ourselves unto him who gave his all for us as we recount the events of this last week of his life. In Jesus' name, amen. The children have given you a good example of the true scene that occurred on that Palm Sunday when our Lord Jesus came into Jerusalem. There must have been some form of tambourines that the young people would have used to attract attention and to show forth their praise as they shouted out hosannas to him. We all know that the crowd in a moment of great and high expectancy tore off their cloaks and their robes and spread them out in front of Jesus as he came in on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy. He came as a king. This, of course, was that crucial moment in which all of the opposition that Satan could bring forward in the minds and the hearts of that establishment which could not cause him to bend their way. And so they sought to destroy him. They covenanted with Judas Iscariot to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus went into the temple on Monday and he drove from the temple those who would desecrate the house of God. And what a lesson that ought to be for us in an age of the greatest irreverence probably in the whole history of our country. On Tuesday, he disgraced and refuted his enemies as he taught and preached. On Wednesday, he was in retirement in Bethany. On Thursday, he came back and instituted that solemn Paschal feast in which he portrayed with broken bread and with a goblet of wine his own sacrifice for our sins. And then on the early hours of Friday morning, he was arrested while at prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. They came out for him with staves and with torches, and they sought to take him back for a mockery of a trial, first in the presence of Caiaphas and Annas, and then when they had already decreed that he should die and knowing that they could not render a death penalty verdict, they pushed him away and carried him to the Roman governor over that area, whose name was Pilate. Pilate is the first of four men that I want to speak briefly about who met Jesus for the very first time that morning. Between the hours of nine o'clock in the morning and three in the afternoon, our Lord Jesus had contact with four people, four people, and his presence in their presence sheds a great deal of light on us in our own response to Jesus. Pilate was the first of them. Pilate was a procurator, a sort of sub-governor. He was under the jurisdiction of the whole governor of the province of Syria, a sort of a middle-class civil servant who had arisen to a place that was a good stepping stone to go on up further. He had been put there because he had been the object of favoritism by one of the emperor's favorites in Rome. 
Pilate had determined to make the best of his opportunity, and when he had gone there at Caesarea, which was the capital, he had sought to bring the Jews into submission. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that one of the first things that he did was to bring the Roman eagle and the Roman standard into the holy city of Jerusalem. This, of course, violated all that a Jew counted sacred. The Jews have been famous throughout all of history for the fact that they would not bow down or worship images of any description or kind. And the vilest possible thing that the Roman government could have done would be to bring those standards into the holy city of Jerusalem and even close to the temple precincts. And this is exactly what Pilate did. Rome was usually tolerant of the religions of the people where they conquered, and Pilate had done a very foolish thing. And he began to learn how stubborn and obstinate these Jews could be. Great droves of them, enormous crowds of them, left the whole city of Jerusalem and marched all the way to Caesarea, where, his, where, where was the capital of his government. And there at Caesarea, they tried to enter his court. They shouted out to him that he must take these Roman standards away, away from the temple precincts and clear out of the city of Jerusalem. And Pilate had his soldiers go out among the crowd. And then at a given moment, and in a voice of rage, he screamed to his soldiers to take their swords and daggers and spears and kill the Jews. And they all drew their swords and daggers and spears. And to the utter astonishment of Pilate, this grand multitude of Jews simply fell on the floor and stretched their arms out, ready to be killed rather than violate their religious principles. And even this was too much for Pilate. And he gave the order that they were to put up their swords and spears and daggers and told his officers to go back to Jerusalem and take away the standards. A second way in which he had incurred the wrath of the Jews was by trying to take money from the temple treasury and use it to build a better water system for the city of Jerusalem. And the Jews protested this vigorously. And so this Pilate, who had trouble with these Jews, now is confronted with a great moral dilemma. Jesus, as far as we know, had never met any of the Roman officials. We know that John the Baptist had met Herod, but Jesus had never met any of the Roman officials until that morning when he was dragged into Pilate's presence. Pilate was a shrewd politician. Most politicians know all about jealousy and envy because it is one of their standard trades that they use in trying to destroy other people's characters and in stepping over them uh, to achieve their ambitions. And so this Pilate knew that it was for envy that these Jews had brought Jesus into his presence, demanding that he be crucified. Pilate listened to what Jesus had to say, and he said to him very straightforwardly, Are you a king? And Jesus answered with a candor that must have been the delight of this politician, Yes, indeed, I am a king. You have said the truth, I am. And when he said these words, Pilate came back out, and he said, I don't see anything criminal about this man. I see no reason for condemning him to death. And the Jews began to make up all sorts of lies. They said he forbade us to pay taxes. He claims to be a king who is in competition with Caesar. 
He claims even to be the Son of God. And by our law, he ought to be put to death. Pilate was intrigued by this strange man who had come into his presence. He talks with Jesus some more. He wants to know about this kingdom. And Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus said, I am born into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate, in a moment of sarcasm, says to him, what is truth? And then walks away from his presence before he can get any answer to it. His wife had sent word to him to have nothing to do with this just man, that she had suffered agonies in her dreams about him. And Pilate, absolutely convinced of the innocence of Jesus, tried to get the Jews to go away. He thought first of a plan that might work. He thought he might send him to Herod, and that by doing this he could get rid of this problem of what to do with Jesus. Now the lesson that Pilate teaches us is this, that we may sometimes soften and weaken our conscience to the point when one day some great crisis will occur, and in that moment which would have been our grandest opportunity, we will buckle and fold under because we have given way on a great many other occasions. This is often the case with people in public life. When you read of some hideous moral defection, you need not assume that it all happened in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But there had been going on a steadily rotting process that had taken place in the conscience of Pilate. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, and yet Pilate was thinking about his retirement that one day he could get a salary and retire from Rome. And why should he let this Jew who had been brought into his presence stand in the way of his personal ambitions and his own gain? And so his moral considerations are done in, and Pilate condemns Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate teaches us a lesson, a very important lesson, that there are decisions which each one of us have to make which if we shall listen to our conscience and take that most painful route of obedience, it will strengthen us and make us strong for God. I must confess that there is something that fascinates me about Pilate. Maybe it's because I've always been interested in politics and some of the, the troubles that politicians go through with on moral decisions. But when you study him and read him, you see a man who knows to do right and yet will not do it. And as surely as we squelch our conscience and disobey the light that God gives us, we go down. I like to think that if Pilate had in that moment come through for God and stood up gloriously, that one day you would have had in your Bible the gospel according to St. Pilate. You would have had perhaps the epistles of Pilate. You would have seen a grand example of courage in the critical hour of his life. But instead, billions of people down through the last 20 centuries have uttered the same words that you said this morning, crucified, crucified under Pontius Pilate because he was soft and weak in his soul. The second person that Jesus met for the same time on that Good Friday was Herod. Pilate, you remember, tried to push Jesus off to Herod, thinking that Herod could make some decision 
and perhaps he could win the support of this little puppet princelet ruler. Uh, Herod was the son of that Herod who had had all of the innocents slain, the little babies slain, trying to kill the baby Jesus. This is the same Herod who had committed incest and married his brother Philip's wife. This is the same Herod who, when challenged about his moral defection by John the Baptist, had John the Baptist taken and incarcerated in a desert prison. This is the same Herod who was so shallow of soul, so weak of character, so much of a reprobate, so sensual and wicked, that one night when he was drinking with those of his court, Salami came in naked and danced in his presence. And Herod, a babbling drunkard, said to her that he would give her anything that she wanted up to half of his kingdom because she had brought such delight to all of the people who were present at that banquet. Hmm. Salami's mother, who was mad at John the Baptist because of his denunciation of her sins, said, you go back and tell him that you want the head of John the Baptist delivered to you on a platter. And so she did. And this drunken debauchee had one of the grandest prophets that God ever put on the earth destroyed in order to please a little sex pot who had come into his presence that evening. It is significant that when Jesus was led into the presence of Herod, that Herod had wanted to see him for some times. He thought he might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. He had heard that he did miracles. And legends tell us that there were paintings on the walls, paintings of great clusters of grapes. And Herod said, if you're the son of God, then turn these paintings into true grapes. He wanted to see Jesus perform some act of magic, to perform some miracle, and Jesus answered him never a word. It is a possible thing to sin and to sin and to sin until finally God's voice speaks to you no more and your conscience will never bother you again. I sometimes think that this is what's happening in America today. That we are becoming insensitive to sin. That we are glorying in indecency that we have become ribald and evil and wicked. And one day the voice of God will grow silent and no longer will we be rebuked by our conscience and no longer will we feel any guilt. And when we have reached that point, we shall stand as Herod stood in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus never answered him a word, not a word. The greatest judgment that God can inflict is to grow silent and not to speak to you anymore. They tell us that a frog, if he leaps into boiling water, can jump out. But if you take a frog and put him into some cold water and then turn the fire on under it, and it warms up slowly and slowly and slowly, that you can cook him. And it won't be sharp enough to cause him to leap out of the water. I have visited 
leper colonies in Thailand and in Vietnam and in Africa. I've seen those lepers with the stumps of their hands and their feet bathing them in warm paraffin, trying to preserve some sensitivity and some feeling. And one of the signs that the disease has gone far is when there is no longer any feeling. And when in your conscience you can go to any dirty movie that comes along, when you can commit any immoral act, when you can lie, when you can cheat, when you can steal, and never go back and say to God, God forgive me, and never go back to someone else and say, I'm sorry I did you wrong, and never go back to the other person and say, I've taken this and I want to do what I need to do to make it right. When you've reached that point, you are a reprobate and you are damned. The only way this man did not respond to what Jesus offered him in that moment, it's a melancholy thing to study about Herod. God's judgment is silence. When he speaks to you, obey him promptly and you need never fear damnation. The third man that he met is a very much happier incidence. The first two responded in a way that is, of course, objects that we would wish to avoid, examples of that which we wish to avoid. Pilate and Herod missed their chance, but there was a third man, a man from Cyrene in northern Africa, probably a Jew who had come to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Mark tells us in one significant line that Alexander and Rufus his sons were also in the church there. Their names are listed. This man saw Jesus when he was bearing his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. It was the thing that was done at that time to take a big placard, a big board, and whiten it with gypsum, and then to write in black letters on that white background the charge of the criminal, and then to make him bear his cross all the way up and down the city streets so that all of the citizens might see what was happening to him and avoid his fate. And so Jesus was made to bear his cross up and down the streets where all of the crowds gathered could see him, having been scourged, beaten, brutally, having been up all night, he was weak, and having to carry his cross for a long way, he fell under its weight. Because the Romans occupied the land, all that a Roman had to do to impress a Jew into service was simply reach his sword forward and touch it on him and say, pick that cross up. And this Simon, this Simon was just happened to be there on the way which Jesus took. And a Roman soldier slapped him with a sword and said, pick his cross up. You there, pick his cross up. And Simon of Cyrene picked up the cross of Jesus and bore it. Now let me say there were two men, this Pilate and this Herod, who avoided their duty. And it led to a path of damnation. Here is a man who unwillingly picks up a cross, the cross of Jesus, and as a result of it, we see later that this man became a Christian, this Simon of Cyrene. How many times have you undertaken some task that you really did not want to do and yet you picked it up and looked for the blessing of God in it and God brought a blessing from it? He still does that to this day. 
sometimes when I'm thinking about going to church. I think about John Wesley, how he went very unwillingly one Wednesday night to a prayer meeting in Aldersgate Street on May the 26th, 1738, and heard a man simply read from Martin Luther's commentary on the epistle to the Romans, the change that God can make in a heart. And John Wesley said that that night he felt his heart strangely warm. And God warmed the whole world as a result of the warming that took place when that man went unwillingly to God's place that night. And if God has pushed you toward some task that you really do not want to bear, pick it up for Jesus' sake. Do it for the glory of God, and God will bring a blessing to you. And the last man, the last man was sort of a pest of society, a robber, a person who was guilty of sedition, leading a riot. Jesus, detractors and his enemies, always said of him he was the friend of publicans and sinners. And it's significant that he was nailed on a cross between these two thieves. He died with sinners. He died with them so that he might redeem them. He was numbered with the transgressors. There were three crosses on that hill called Skull Hill, but only one man died. There was one thief who did repent and one who did not repent. And some old commentator has told us this. He has said we are shown one lesson of a man who at the last moment accepted Christ so that we might never despair when the opportunity to receive him comes. And we are shown one man who at the end did not accept him so that we will not unduly put off that decision. Well, this man who was nailed there, what could he do with his hands brutally nailed to a cross? There are some old people in this congregation. There are some sick people that you know who sometimes say to you, what can I do? I have to lie flat on my back in a bed or my health is so feeble I can do very little anymore. Well, this man who was nailed on that cross couldn't do much, but he did what he could. So far as I know, this is the only time that anyone in the Gospels ever simply uses the word Jesus instead of Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus of Galilee or Jesus, thou son of David. But this, this criminal who was dying beside Jesus must have seen the name Jesus written on that placard and he looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said the grandest words that any mortal ear ever heard. Today, said Jesus, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, in heaven, there will be people in heaven that you will be surprised to see there. There will be people in heaven who will be surprised to see you there. And I often think I will be surprised to see myself there. But we can go there by the Lordship of Christ. Last week I went over to Waynesville to a funeral. Most unusual funeral that I ever attended
We had a very unusual one here at one day when Dr. Kenneth Foreman Sr.'s funeral was held. But I never saw anything like this funeral that I went to in Waynesville. Here was a little man who was an elder in the Presbyterian Church there in Waynesville. His wife had been sick for a while and had died. I was asked to come and take part in the service. The presiding minister had me read the New Testament lesson. Then he read his lesson and made the prayers. And when he completed his part in the service, he said, Johnny, the name of the man whose wife had died, Johnny would like to say a few words. Johnny got up. He walked around to where the pulpit was. He didn't stand behind it, but he stood over to one side and he put his hand on the side of it. He called his wife's name. He spoke softly, unemotionally. He said, friends, Natalie would want me to thank you for coming here today. She would want me to thank you for your prayers, for the cards, for the flowers that you've sent. But he said, everything's all right with us. He said, the reason is that in 1956, someone came to live at our house. He said he was a carpenter. He said, you might even call him a contractor. And he said, you know, Natalie and I never got to build a house like we wanted one. But he said, this contractor promised that he would go away and build one for us. He came Saturday night at a quarter to nine and took Natalie away. And she went to live in that house. He said, I'm not jealous because one day he's coming for me and I'm going to live in that house too. And if you don't know him as your savior, I hope you can find him as your savior today. He turned with that and walked back to the pew reserved for the family and sat down. What a testimony. A lot of criticism has been leveled at the church about talking about too much about heaven. God knows that's not our failing now. We're all so concerned with this life that we're living it as, this, as if this was all there is to it, but it's not. Pilate teaches you, when you know the truth, do it. Herod teaches you, obey your conscience. Don't get yourself into the condition where you're hardened in heart to God. Simon of Cyrene teaches you, take up whatever burden will come your way if you do it for the Lord, and he will make it a blessing. And the thief who died beside Jesus teaches you that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved forever. Let us stand in prayer. <clears throat> o God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast given unto us so great a salvation. Forgive us for playing at Christianity as though this was some sort of fun and games at church. And help us to remember the realities of our faith, to be obedient to the best that thou dost reveal unto us, to keep our consciences from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, to obey implicitly and willingly those opportunities that are given unto us, and always to have hope no matter what happens in this life. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father 
and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.